Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We study change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every other week, we examine the most pressing issues of the day through a historical lens, helping us understand what happened then and what that means for us now. Hello, and welcome to Then and Now. I'm your host, Ben Zdenshanovich. I'm a postdoctoral associate at the Luskin Center for History and Policy and a lecturer in history at the University of California, Los Angeles. This is the first episode of an occasional series of Then and Now that explores the past, present, and future of the U.S.-led global international order. The position of the United States as a unipolar global hegemon has been challenged in recent years as never before since the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine has posed a direct military threat to the U.S.-led NATO alliance. Arguably an even greater threat to U.S. geopolitical dominance has been the meteoric rise of China as a leading economic, political, and military power, which will be the topic of today's episode. The Chinese Communist Party's synthesis of authoritarian statism and market capitalism has defied long-standing Western notions of the interrelationship between political and economic freedom. Over the past decade, China's influence has expanded beyond that of original power in East Asia through Chinese financial institutions, such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the New Development Bank. These new financial instruments pose an alternative to Western institutions of international finance, such as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, by funding infrastructure and development projects in Southeast Asia, Africa, and Latin America. This month, the U.S. Department of Defense announced plans to check Chinese regional military power through nine new U.S. military installations in the Philippines. And new tensions have emerged over Chinese intelligence operations. Here to discuss China and the U.S.-led international order is Professor Rosemary Foote. Professor Foote is a senior research fellow at the University of Oxford's Department of Politics and International Relations. She is a research associate at the Oxford China Center, and she's also an emeritus fellow at St. Anthony's College. In 1996, she was elected to be a fellow of the British Academy. Her area of expertise is U.S.-China relations, human rights diplomacy, and Asian regional institutions. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So I'd like to start out by giving our listeners some broad historical context to the relationship between U.S. and China. Uh, so I'm hoping uh, you could sort of walk us through some of the key historical turning points in China's relationship with the United States and the U.S.-led global order since the Communist Revolution in 1949. Well, there are a number of turning points. Um, if you were to give me a limit of, say, three or four to talk about, I would I would have to start with the Korean War. Um of course, there were matters of whether to actually recognize the PRC, um, as it was clear that they were winning the civil war against the nationalists. But it's the outbreak of the Korean War and then Chinese entry into the fighting 
uh, it puts a stop to that particular conversation in the United States about recognition. Um, but it's very important in other ways. I mean, it, for me, the Korean War uh, made the Cold War global. It changed China's status in global politics, and it changed Beijing's place in the Sino-Soviet-American triangle. Uh, it not only globalized the Cold War, but also the American global presence. So on the one hand, the United States and China found themselves immediately facing each other as enemies on the Korean Peninsula. But in the longer term, that led to uh, a U.S. containment policy that involved exclusion of the Beijing government from the United Nations until 1971. There was a strict trade embargo, and the United States established uh, a bilateral security al architecture in East Asia. You know, the hubs and spokes system, I think John Foster Dulles is probably the one that used that phrase for the very first time. And that hubs and spokes system, uh, although the relationships in the hubs and the spokes has changed, nevertheless, that's been a maintained between the United States and its allies. So that's a really important major turning point. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about that hubs and spokes system? Yes. Well, the, the United States signed another number of bilateral defense treaties. That included the Republic of China on Taiwan, uh, but obviously also Japan, South Korea, uh, more latterly, the, the, the Philippines and Thailand. So they became embraced in a system which the Chinese regarded as essentially encircling them, a form of containment that was of concern to them in security terms. I think the other aspect about the Korean War was, of course, that there were nuclear threats issued during the course of that war, particularly towards the end of the war. And I think that had an influence on US and East Asian states thinking about the place of nuclear weapons in security strategies. I'm thinking here of North Korea and China in particular. So I think it affected China's decision to become a nuclear weapons state, which it did in 1964. So the second major turning point, um, I think I'd probably jump forward to 1971-72 and the Sino-American rapprochement. So that we're talking about the Nixon-Kissinger era. And I think, again, it's important to see this as a process. Uh, clearly, the US policy of isolating China was beginning to unravel. And again, you could see this at the United Nations in particular, because you got steady increases in votes for Beijing to take up the seat in the United Nations and to expel the Republic of China on, on Taiwan. Um, and they came together uh, in part because the Chinese had identified the former Soviet Union as its primary enemy, and clearly the United States felt the same, that the uh, former Soviet Union was its major strategic enemy. So you get this kind of coincidence of balance of power thinking in both the White House and in Zhongnanhai. So Mao was arguing that the former Soviet Union was China's primary enemy and that the United States had become a secondary enemy. And as with the language of that time, because the Soviet Union was the primary enemy, China could form a united front with the Americans to tackle that Soviet threat. 
And of course, this then led on, uh, took a, seven years, but it led on to the full establishment of uh, diplomatic relations, uh, the termination of the US defense agreement with the Republic of China on Taiwan. And actually, during the Nixon Kissinger period, a private agreement between the US and China that Taiwan was a part of China. Um, though Beijing didn't manage to get the US to make this a formal uh, public uh, policy, not a declared policy. I think that period is also very important because of the introduction by China under Deng Xiaoping of its reform and opening policy in late 1978. And that led on to the remarkable economic transformation that's become so significant in the 21st century. Indeed, uh, you can see this move, particularly from China's entry into the WTO in 2001. So that's my second major turning point. I, I, w I wouldn't like to miss out my third turning point, though, which is 1989 and the Tiananmen bloodshed. And uh, that's because it's cast this shadow over U.S.-China relations ever since. Uh, but in a, in a number of ways, uh, it encouraged the world to think about China in in a in a different way, as an outlier, at least for a time, as a pariah state, at least for a time. Um, it was a sort of a positional transformation. It brought a halt to this idea that Beijing under Deng Xiaoping was on this reformist path. It was liberalizing. It was increasing life chances, lifestyle choices, human rights of its citizenry. Um, now, of course, all of that you know, was a difficult policy for the United States and its Western allies to sustain, particularly as China grew in power. So let me say something as a sort of final discussion of turning points. Let me say something about China's growing power, uh, particularly after it joined the WTO in 2001 and then on to its emergence as the second largest economy in the world, the world's leading trading nation, second largest defense budget, all of those things. And particularly around the time of the global financial crisis in 2008, where we get this voiced uh, doubt about the viability and efficiency of the neoliberal economic model and the replacement of that with an argument that actually maybe the political economic system associated with China had something to teach us all. Um, so that becomes part of the dialogue um, uh, about China, uh, between the West and China, but also more broadly, the idea that an authoritarian model could result in these impressive growth rates could mean large-scale reductions in poverty and all with relative social stability. That, that really begins to generate a sense of unease in the West and a sense that China is really a very potent challenge um, to the dominant neoliberal economic model, the liberal democratic model, um, in which uh, the West is seen as really predominating, particularly after the end of the Cold War. And you've recently written a book on China and the United Nations entitled China, the UN, 
and Human Protections, Beliefs, Power, Image, which was published through Oxford University Press in 2020. Uh, so what were your major aims in writing this book? And what might China's actions today mean for the future of the UN and global politics and global governance more broadly? Well, it, it comes out of the, my last remarks in a way. You know, this notion of a more confident China, more willing to uh, tell the world what it regards as a successful story and actually talking about the fact that we should we're in a post western world that we don't want to live in a us led global order but actually want to live in a un centric international order of course that's a state based order so why did i write it I, I i've been interested in exploring what it means for china to take on this larger role in global governance uh, you know it talks about leading, it needs to lead the reform of global governance. So far more confident about its own ability to shape the global system. Um, and it leads on, it has led on in the international relations field to larger questions about is China a revisionist or reformist or a status quo power? Is it a real challenge to liberal dimensions of, of global order? So that's what I was asking in broad terms, but specifically in the book, I was asking why is it that China became more deeply involved in the work of the UN at a time when the UN had moved beyond its kind of state-based Westphalian approach to security to focus more directly on the security of the individual and of groups and on internal conflict, mass violations of human rights inside states as representing a threat to international peace and security. So China got very active at this important 1990s uh, liberal turn in which the UN was involved. Um, and, and obviously I saw this as a, an arena in which there was significant normative contestation. Um, and then I started to look at how China is working within the UN um, and several chapters explore this question about uh, China's position in different issue areas related to this idea of human protection. So there are chapters about the protection of civilians in armed conflict. There are uh, chapters about the responsibility to protect your peoples from mass atrocity crimes, about the women, peace and security agenda, about the work of the Human Rights Council. And so China has been working really to have its perspective on these issues taken a bit more seriously. Um, and I, and I um, come up in the book with a kind of a, a China model um, for how international order is best guarantee and compare that with dominant normative structures within the United Nations. So you mentioned earlier, uh, coming out of the 2008 crisis, the idea of uh, China's kind of model of uh, authoritarian capitalism, state-led capitalism, as, as being a potential uh, sort of uh, alternative to the to the uh, to the Western uh, uh, global order. Um, so, uh, what are the prospects on the horizon for? Uh, for new illiberal uh, forms of global order under Chinese or or perhaps Russian auspices. Yes, there's a lot of discussion about this, particularly in the 
international law journals and in other venues. But let me focus on human rights for a moment, because I've been arguing that it's in the human rights area where China has posed the most significant challenge to liberal order. Um, and so what the Chinese are arguing is that they're saying that the legal sovereign equality of states and non-interference in internal affairs are the most important norms governing state-to-state -state relations and the, that the state is the best guarantor of human rights. So they've gone on from there and sort of attacked. So that's a kind of a, a relativist perspective, a state-based perspective on rights, not a perspective that thinks about universality and the individual human rights of us as human beings. So it's a, attacked the universality of, of human rights, arguing that all countries must proceed from prevailing realities and go their own way. And they talk about themselves as having opened a new path of human rights protection. Um, and so development in their particular uh, model is cast as the key to solving uh, human rights problems. Uh, th and that, that, if you focus on development as a kind of primary foundational rights, then this is the solution for other developing countries and that it's the basis from which other human rights might actually flow. So it's a very much a status developmentalist position on, on human rights. Right. We're, we're seeing a lot of investment now in Southeast Asia, Central Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, uh, through entities like the, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the New Development Bank uh, under, uh, under Chinese auspices. Um, so uh, could, could you tell us a little bit, uh, go into a little bit more, more detail perhaps about, uh, about how China is uh, attempting to, uh, to sort of exert its authority through international development and investment, and uh, and how this relates to to human rights. Yes, um, the, the, there are a number of initiatives. I mean, let me pull out some of the things that uh, you've said to, to I, because there's not one answer to this question. I mean, if you look at something like the Asian in Infrastructure Investment Bank, then over time, really, I would argue, and others would argue that it's not so different from other um, development banks that are out there, the Asian Development Bank or, or, or the World Bank and so on, and indeed has adopted a number of the procedures that we would recognize as, as, as kind of um, they've come to be accepted in the, in the global system. So not a broad-based challenge across all of those uh, in institutions that you referred to, but it also has something called the Global Development Initiative that it's introduced at the United Nations. And it's set up within the United Nations something called the um, Friends of the Global Development Initiative. A number of countries, quite a large number of countries. I, I can't remember the current figure, but we're talking about you know around 80 countries that have signed on to it and so on. And the 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 purpose of the Global Development Initiative essentially is to emphasize the path that China itself has taken. Uh, the emphasis is very much on poverty reduction, on, on uh, infrastructure development, 
those kinds of policies that China itself has developed. Now, there's nothing wrong with those things, but if you look at something that the United Nations has put forward, the Sustainable Development Goals, the United Nations always emphasizes that all of these things have to be put within a human rights framework. In other words, if you do development, it's not something that the state itself imposes on communities and, and regions of a country, but it's actually something that's done in agreement with the society in, in broader terms. So, so there is this emphasis very much on the path that China has taken uh, rather than the emphasis in the United Nations, which is very much to emphasize a sort of um, three-pillar structure, which is uh, international peace and security, development and human rights. China is much more likely to emphasize state-based development within a socially stable state, in other words, not giving much place for civil society. Uh, so a strong state, socially stable, uh, and focus on development as determined at the state level. So that's how, if you like, it's, it's projecting the benefits that might derive from its own success story. And the U.S. Department of Defense recently announced it had reached a deal with Manila to establish nine military facilities in the Philippines. How has the U.S. been attempting to kind of re reassert its its hegemony in the in the region, uh, both politically and militarily? And and what has the response been from uh, from the Chinese government? Of course, it's not just the United States that's changing policy with respect to the region. Uh, regional actors, whether that's the Philippines, Japan, India, South Korea, wherever, they're keen to develop a response to a more powerful China. And I think they're keen to keep the United States in and involved in the region as a, as a contributor to regional security. But I think what you're really referring to here uh, are the new developments such as the Quad, you know, the so-called quadrilateral security dialogue that involves uh, the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. And also AUKUS, you know, that, that strangely named body involves Australia, the UK, and the United States. So, so there's this turn to an Indo-Pacific framing and away from an Asia-Pacific framing. And I think in some senses that's because by expanding the geographical remit, in some ways, you diffuse the impact of China's presence and Chinese power. So I think the Indo-Pacific framing is something to do with, obviously, major power rivalries. It's something to do with trying to bind together a coalition of like-minded democratic states. But actually, I think as it's been introduced and and as it's unfolded, it's moved beyond this sort of rather narrow co coalition of democratic states and begun to embrace other countries. So to go back, for the US, I think the new Indo-Pacific strategy is about strategic deterrence. But it's also important to remember that the, the meeting in the middle of 2022 discussed topics like climate change, COVID-19, technological innovation, I think designed to kind of 
appeal beyond the traditional security focus um, and beyond the initial quad grouping. Um, and it also, of course, the United States has introduced an essential, I regard as essential, economic element as well. So there's something called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, IPEF. Uh, it, it's come about in part because the United States walked away under the Trump administration from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it would never get the Congress to agree to becoming its becoming a member of the CPTPP, the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. So in a way, IPEF is the replacement. Um, the problem is, uh, I mean, I, I, the, I'll, I'll talk about the weaknesses, then I'll talk about some of the interesting things that have actually happened that make this such an important turning point. The problem with IPEF is that uh, obviously countries are concerned what, with what would happen if Biden doesn't win the next election. You know, you get another Republican administration in play. Is the whole IPEF economic framework going to simply disappear? It's possible. And of course, there is an underlying difficulty in that and many countries in the region uh, are concerned about a framework that doesn't give China a place within it. The, China is so important to them as an economic partner, as you know, uh, leading trading partner, investment partner, aid partner in a number of cases. They are very deeply integrated with with China. And so there is a sort of this widespread sentiment, particularly in Southeast Asia, that they don't want to be forced to choose sides between the United States and China. That's why the Philippines' recent decision is very interesting and very important to watch, actually. Um, IPEF does include, at the moment, um, 13 regional partners I'm so, so I'm talking about the more positive development. So I've talked about some of the underlying weaknesses with the Indo-Pacific strategy. But if, if you think about uh, some of the developments, I'm surprised that they have already got 13 regional partners under the IPEF heading. I think the reason is partly because they are talking about trade issues, they're talking about supply chains, they're talking about clean energy, they're talking about anti-corruption. Uh, so, so there are lots of sort of topics that incentivize a number of countries to become part of it. And they're not all democratic um, by, by a long shot. Vietnam is, for example, one of the 13 countries. So again, uh, it's interesting to it will be very interesting to see where this where this goes because i think the other thing i've noticed is that china's own views of the indo-pacific strategy are beginning to change uh, it's beginning to take it more seriously i think it was very dismissive as many commentators were in the early years of the introduction of the indo-pacific strategy but it's beginning to take it more seriously. And I think that's partly because of the China-India relationship. Uh, so it, China is very focused on how India will behave within these particular framing. Uh, it sees that country in many ways as the key to the success of the Indo-Pacific strategy, because after all, a number of the other countries, Japan, Australia, um, they're already close 
American allies and so on. So first of all, I think Beijing had the sense that India would be a very problematic actor within the Quad, for example. Um, obviously, it has a long-standing identity as a non-aligned state, as a state that guards its strategic autonomy really, really carefully and so on. Uh, but it's been very difficult for China and India to stabilize their ties. As we know, this is partly because of the border dispute, partly because they are, in many sense, rivals on a number of fronts. Um, and and I think the the view in China now is that actually India is beginning to move away from its association with non-aligned strategies and actually moving closer to the United States, and they did not expect to see that. So their overall view of the Quad is that it's designed to contain and encircle China. It's designed to prevent China's rise, and they, and they call it an Asian version of NATO. They argue that it's insensitive to China's security needs and, and thinking, and they draw parallels between uh, what's happened with respect to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and what's going on in, in Asia. So, so they argue that much like NATO refused to see that its expansion eastwards, closer to Russia's borders, was viewed as very threatening in Moscow. They're saying that the same thing is happening in Asia, that you know these countries, and the United States in particular, because this really is about China-US relations, the, the, they do not realize that this is beginning to be viewed in China as deliberate uh, containment, encirclement, and threat um, to their future existence. So, you know, there are lots of movements. I think there's lots of movements in terms of China-US relations, in terms of strategies in the region um, that will keep us all very busy in the, in, in the months and years to come. Yeah, something to, uh, to watch closely uh, in the coming months. Uh, Rosemary, thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing your expertise with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much again for asking me. Thank you for listening to Then and Now, a podcast by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. You can learn more about our work or share your thoughts with us at our website, luskincenter.history.ucla.edu. Our show is produced by David Myers and Rosalind Campbell, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.